Welcome to the March 19, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we'll review the clinical correlates of NT5C2 mutations in relapsed ALL, the impact of crevalumab, a recycling monoclonal antibody against complement component C5 in paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, and the relationship between leukocyte NADPH oxidase and leukotriene B4 and neutrophilic inflammation in the context of chronic granulomatous disease. First, let's examine data from the blood article entitled Subclonal NT5C2 mutations are associated with poor outcomes after relapse of pediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia by Malwine Bars from the Charité University Medicine Berlin, Germany, and colleagues from the German Cancer Consortium, the German Cancer Research Center, and the United States. 15 to 20% of pediatric ALL patients suffer a relapse, which is a primary cause of death from childhood cancer. Treatment consists of intensified chemotherapy regimens and risk-adapted allocation to hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Event-free survival rates after relapse range between 10% and 70%, depending on clinical features, response to treatment, as well as the molecular genetics of the relapsed leukemia. Two key points from the report are that NT5C2 mutations were present in 16%, of B-cell precursor ALL relapses, and were clonal in one-third and subclonal in two-thirds of cases, and subclonal NT5C2 mutations independently predicted inferior outcome after relapse, although they were rapidly eradicated by relapse therapy. In cancer, improvement of therapeutic strategies depends on the identification of novel predictive markers and druggable targets. Activating mutations in the cytosolic 5-nucleotidase 2, commonly known as NT5C2, are considered to drive relapse in ALL by conferring purine analog resistance. In an effort to further explore the clinical effects of NT5C2 mutations in relapsed ALL, Bars and colleagues evaluated NT5C2 in 455 relapsed B-cell precursor ALL patients treated in the ALL-REZ-BFM-2002 relapse trial using sequencing and sensitive allele-specific real-time PCR. The authors detected 110 NT5C2 mutations in 75, or 16.5%, of 455 B-cell precursor ALL relapses. Two-thirds of relapses harbored subclonal and only one-third clonal mutations. Event-free survival after relapse was inferior in patients with clonal and subclonal NT5C2 mutations compared to those without. Interestingly, in a multivariable analysis, the investigators found that subclonal but not clonal NT5C2 mutations were associated with reduced event-free survival and with an increased rate of non-response to relapse treatment. After relapse induction treatment, 82% or 27 out of 33 subclonal NT5C2 mutations, became undetectable at the time of non-response or second relapse. And in 71%, or 10 out of 14 patients, subclonal NT5C2 mutations were undetectable. 
While these results show that subclonal NT5C2 mutations predict poor outcome, including relapse and subsequent treatment failure, they do not appear to be essential for maintenance of leukemia, since these mutations diminish or disappear with treatment. The mechanistic basis for how subclones of NT5C2 mutated leukemic cells predict poor response to chemotherapy is unclear. Although the report did not include a comprehensive genomic analysis, further investigation is warranted to determine whether the NT5C2 subclone is a surrogate marker for the coexistence of other subclones with chemotherapy-induced resistance mutations. It is also possible that NT5C2 mutated cells in the bone marrow niche promote the survival and evolution of other leukemic subclones during remission of the primary ALL. This has been experimentally demonstrated in another leukemia model, whereby FLT3 mutated subclones enhance the fitness of experimental KMT2A MLL-T3 fusion leukemias by secreting the growth factor macrophage migration inhibitory factor, or MIF. In summary, this study indicates that molecular identification of NT5C2 mutations may independently predict poor prognosis and act as an indicator for high-risk treatment. Given the subclonal nature of NT5C2 mutations and their disappearance in subsequent relapses, Specific therapy targeting the mutated NT5C2 cells at the time of relapse is unlikely to be beneficial. Whether targeting NT5C2 mutated cells during high-risk ALL frontline maintenance therapy will reduce the risk of relapse remains to be determined. Next up, we'll discuss the blood article entitled the complement C5 inhibitor crevalimab in paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria by Alexander Roth from University Hospital Essen, Germany, and his colleagues. A key point of the report is that in treatment-naive and ecolizumab-exposed PNH patients, disease was stably controlled on a schedule of up to every four-week self-administered subcutaneous injections of crevalimab. Paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria or PNH, is a clonal hematopoietic stem cell disorder caused by somatic mutation of the X-linked gene PIGAE. PNH can be a life-threatening disorder, and it is clinically characterized by intravascular hemolytic anemia, hematuria, fatigue, and thrombosis. Two medications, ecolizumab and ravalizumab, which has a longer half-life necessitating less frequent administration, are FDA-approved for the treatment of PNH. These agents are humanized monoclonal antibodies that bind C5 and prevent its cleavage to C5A and C5B. Without the latter, PNH red cells are protected from intravascular hemolysis. Indeed, trials of these agents indicate that they abrogate intravascular hemolysis, stabilize hemoglobin levels without the need for blood transfusions, mitigate the risk of thrombosis, improve quality of life, and likely extend survival. The drawbacks of these drugs include cost, frequent IV infusions, and extravascular hemolysis from failure of ecolizumab to control C3B deposition on PNH red cells due to the absence of CD55. Breakthrough intravascular hemolysis due to failure of ecolizumab to sufficiently lower free C5 levels for the full two weeks 
also referred to as pharmacokinetic breakthrough, is solved by ravelizumab. However, pharmacodynamic breakthrough from complement amplifying conditions, such as infection, pregnancy, or surgery, remains an unsolved problem. In addition, there is a rare C5 polymorphism, R885H, found in 3% of the Japanese population that prevents echolizumab and ravelizumab from binding this epitope. Roth and colleagues conducted a three-part open-label adaptive phase 1-2 trial of crevalumab, a sequential monoclonal antibody recycling technology antibody, referred to as SMART, which inhibits terminal complement at C5. It uses pH-dependent binding to target C5 and promotes degradation of C5 in lysosomes and recycling of the monoclonal antibody to the plasma. This allows for sustained C5 blockade using extended, low-volume subcutaneous injections, which can be self-administered. Part 1 of the investigation assessed safety, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacodynamics in healthy volunteers. Part 2 administered two doses of IV crevalumab, followed by weekly subcutaneous crevalumab, to 10 treatment-naive PNH patients. In Part 3 of the study, the drug was administered to 19 echolizumab-treated patients. Participants received an IV-loading dose of crevalumab two weeks after the last dose of echolizumab. The patients were then randomized, one to one to one, to one of three subcutaneous doses for 20 weeks, 680 milligrams every four weeks, or 340 milligrams every two weeks, or 170 milligrams weekly. The data showed that crevalumab concentrations exceeded the pre-specified level of 100 micrograms per milliliter and resulted in complete and sustained terminal complement pathway inhibition in both PNH treatment-naive and C5 inhibitor pretreated patients. In addition, hemolytic activity and free C5 levels were suppressed below clinically relevant thresholds. Safety was consistent with the known profile of C5 inhibition, as expected. In patients already being treated with echolizumab, formation of drug-target drug immune complexes, or DTDC, was observed in all 19 patients switching to crevalumab. This manifested as transient mild or moderate vasculitic skin reactions in two of 19 participants, which ultimately resolved with continued crevalumab treatment and did not result in loss of efficacy. The authors demonstrated that subcutaneous dosing of crevalumab at 680 mg every four weeks is safe and effective for treating PNH. Because crevalumab targets a different epitope on C5, it is also effective for patients with the C5R885H polymorphism that prevents binding of echolizumab and ravelizumab. While the drug appears to prevent pharmacokinetic breakthrough, it does not prevent pharmacodynamic breakthrough or stop extravascular hemolysis associated with complement amplifying conditions. The data presented in this report indicate that crevalumab has similar efficacy than standard of care with a smaller, subcutaneously administrable amount of drug. This is a welcome alternative for PNH patients who will prefer subcutaneous dosing every four weeks rather than intravenous infusions every eight weeks. Looking forward, Proximal complement inhibitors, upstream of C5, are in clinical development, 
and may prove to be more superior than C5 inhibitors in controlling intravascular and extravascular hemolysis in PNH. Last up, let's review information presented in the blood article entitled, NADPH oxidase controls pulmonary neutrophil infiltration in the response to fungal cell walls by limiting LTB4 by Zimin Song, Mary Dinauer, and their colleagues from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Two key findings from this report were that neutrophil NADPH oxidase limits leukotriene B4, or LTB4, production by controlling calcium influx and that LTB4 is a major driver in promoting neutrophilic inflammation in chronic granulomatous disease mice in response to fungal cell walls. By way of background, the leukocyte NADPH oxidase plays a key role in host defense and immune regulation. It is a multi-subunit enzyme that is critical for generating superoxide, the precursor to reactive oxygen species, or ROS, which is important for the killing of pathogens. Inactivating mutations in NADPH oxidase, such as in the catalytic membrane-bound subunit NOX2, result in chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD, an inherited disorder characterized by recurrent bacterial and fungal infections and aberrant inflammation. Key drivers of hyperinflammation induced by fungal cell walls and CGD are still incompletely defined. The authors found that compared to wild-type neutrophils, CGD neutrophils produced higher amounts of LTB4 in vitro following activation with either zymosan, a yeast membrane extract, or immune complexes. Interestingly, the increased production of LTB4 correlated with increased calcium influx in CGD neutrophils, which is normally restrained in wild-type neutrophils by the electrogenic activity of NADPH oxidase. The investigators also identified a feed-forward regulation loop by which increased LTB4 generation by CGD neutrophils was augmented by paracrine crosstalk with the LTB4 receptor BLT1. Under in vitro conditions, CGD neutrophils formed more numerous and larger clusters in the presence of zymosan compared to wild type, which was LTB4 and BLT1 dependent. Furthermore, in CGD mice, zymosan-induced lung inflammation and accumulation of neutrophils was many times higher than in wild-type animals and was associated with higher levels of LTB4. Using neutrophil-depleted mice, the investigators could verify that neutrophils were responsible for the majority of LTB4 production in the lungs, although other leukocytes were also capable of synthesizing the compound. In vitro, Either an inhibitor of LTB4 synthesis or an antagonist of the LTB4 receptor reduced neutrophil clusters. Similarly, in CGD mice, these agents prevented zymosan-induced hyperinflammation and reduced neutrophil recruitment to the lungs to wild-type levels. Notably, neutrophil recruitment to the lungs was significantly reduced at 24 hours, even if the inhibitor of LTB4 synthesis was administered eight hours following the zymosan treatment. However, this protective effect was lost if the inhibitor was delivered 24 hours following zymosan exposure, highlighting the critical role of LTB4 in the early phase of aberrant inflammation.
In summary, the authors have identified the pathogenetic role of excess LTB4 produced in inflammation due to the enhanced calcium signaling in CGD neutrophils, a process which is independent of deficient ROS-related elimination of infectious microbes. It will be of great interest to further explore the relevance of these findings to human disease. For example, one rational bench-to-bedside strategy would be to evaluate drugs targeting LTB4 or its receptor or neutrophil calcium channels in patients with CGD. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals. 